there was a freaking maze. It was the whole point of it was you're supposed to work. You should have known that you had to work watching that show. I think that show is the most overrated show. I don't know. Sorry, about is this your Sahara? I think it's actually the most overrated show so, ever made. Season two, uh, I've got some complaints about, and this also goes to foreshadowing. Hello, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. I'm Pat. I'm Jess. And I'm Lance. Today we'll be discussing foreshadowing in Lance's book, Two Moons Mercy. We'll get right into that after this short message. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're an aspiring writer and you need a cup of coffee. Whether you were up late last night or need something to sip on while you're writing after this, you're going to need a hot cup of joe. Here at WGBC, when we need a cup, we always reach for Polar Coffee. Polar Coffee is a nano roaster in Ottawa, Ontario. The owner, Kevin, has built relationships with farmers around the world and has a great selection of ethically purchased single-source beans that he will custom roast on order for a great price. We're talking cheaper than local coffee shop for an even better product. Kev also sells bulk green beans if you're a micro-roaster yourself. Find him at the link in the episode description. Delivery available in the Ottawa area. So today I'm going to talk about foreshadowing. And I think that foreshadowing, well, first of all, foreshadowing is when you as a writer, you put in things throughout your story to anticipate something that will happen so that when the reader gets there, they're surprised, but it's inevitable and readers feel like they could have figured it out maybe. Uh, So I think that most stories, most stories probably have or need foreshadowing, but not definitely not all stories. Uh, but I think an important distinction is that in the real world, there is no foreshadowing. In the real world, things just happen. There, you know, if, if you, you might w- like walk by, a, I'm trying to think of a, an example from, well, I'll have an example from a book later on, but you might, you might see two, two flowers blooming right next to each other. And then those flowers each represent a, a person in you know in other parts of your life it doesn't mean they're going to get married it just means two flowers grew there but in a book that can mean a lot and you can use foreshadowing to make your endings and any part of your book more impactful and more interesting for sure readers and movie watchers like to feel like they could guess the ending so even though they usually won't especially in a mystery but even for everything else like the reader would want to feel like I could have put all those pieces together and figured it out if I really, really thought and tried about it. So I think most plots probably need foreshadowing. Some obviously don't, but uh, but most plots do. So if you're going to have a heist movie, you need to have a twist at the end of the heist movie. For sure, someone betrays them and then you double cross the double crosser. And all that's foreshadowed. When the, when the double crosser betrays you, well, you kind of go back and say, I could have guessed it was them because they were broke and they need the money or maybe they have a they have a history of being a traitor and then whoever. And then so that's that's um, that would be an example of foreshadowing. But I think all types of plots use foreshadowing. Uh, and I think if you have a mystery style plot, which many books have, uh, then then you definitely want to foreshadow it because readers are going to as they're reading. One of the driving forces that'll make readers want to keep reading a book with a with a mystery plot, whether it's a main plot or a secondary plot, is that they want to uncover the mystery. And what the mechanics of what makes someone actually interested in a mystery is probably incremental progress towards solving the mystery and being able to t- pretend that you can guess the answer. And for instance, uh, in in this uh, this one book called The Hero of Ages. There's the the hero writes little sections of the book th- of a book throughout the book, and lots of people as you're reading it, you're reading these tiny sections trying to figure out which of the main characters is actually the hero who wrote the book, and you can figure it out if you're looking for it. Uh, I think character also it's not just plot but characters too have foreshadowing. I'll give an example uh, from a discussion I actually had with Pat a while ago. Suppose you have a story with a guy who's never late to any meeting ever. He's always, always, always on time. The reason he's on time is because 
when he was a little kid, his parents were driving him to a soccer game and they were late because they were always late. And the soccer game was super duper important and he missed it and he got really bummed out and he swore he would never be late again. And then there's this really important meeting. Everyone's sure he's going to show up on time because he always does. And he doesn't show up. Well, the foreshadowing there is he was walking down the hall and then he saw a distressed parent who was freaking out because their car broke down and their kid wasn't going to be able to make it to their soccer tournament. And that, and now you're thinking, oh, that's why they were late because there was a, a, a deeper motivation that overrode their, their normal motivation. And you accurately foreshadowed that by explaining what their motivation was and the reason for it. Uh, I think in fiction, you can use a lot of different ways to do foreshadowing. A very common one is using a, having a prophecy. If you have a prophecy, you can, you can do a lot of fun things with that. You can just say, oh, well, this person is going to be the chosen one. And then your prophecy has like 10 lines, like 10 criteria. And as you discover throughout the book, the different criteria, different characters will look like they're prophesied ones. But then you have to have a red herring. A red herring is someone who looks like they're the prophesied one, but they're actually not. And usually the person who's the chosen one, I think if it's well done, they might not look like the chosen one. But then when everything gets revealed about them, you realize that it was obvious all along that maybe the way things were worded was a little ambiguous and that this person actually does meet all of them. You can also use history as foreshadowing. So if you have a, a, a story where there's maybe several warring houses or factions, there could be legends thousands of years ago and then those legends, you, you can tell the story of those legends. And then you can say, tell, tell those, you know, there's an old, old grandparent reading to a young kid, reading the legends of the past, and then they never come up again. But the actions of the present actually mirror what happened in the past. And that's another way you can foreshadow. So an astute reader, a reader who's really paying attention, can maybe figure it out. Again, they probably won't, but maybe they will. I think one thing is this is obviously easier to do if you're a planning writer. If you plan a lot, you figure out what your sweet reveal is going to be, and then you go in and foreshadow it so it's more impactful. But if you're a discovery writer, this can be harder to do, especially if you're writing multi-book, because then you might not be able to review. You know, if you have a sweet reveal in book three, book one and two are already published, you can't go back and change them. So this is a bit of a problem. How do you foreshadow things in book three? so that they were there all along in book one and two. I think the trick for that is put in a ton of stuff and just keep it in the bank. So in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, for instance, they have, uh, they have Tywin Lannister writing letters at one point and telling his son that some wars are won with letters. And then, of course, he makes a sweet alliance at the last minute and wins a big battle because of it. And then he, the author may not have planned that to be exactly how how the problem got resolved, but he had put in all this foreshadowing that maybe was a little ambiguous, and then he could pick and choose what he would want to use when he gets there. That's one possible strategy for discovery writers. But you can always fix these things in editing if it's within the same book. A couple of examples of really awesome foreshadowing are in Star Wars, when one of the best reveals of all time or the most known reveals of all time is when Darth Vader says that he's Luke's father. And this was foreshadowed because we know that Luke's father was strong in the force. Darth Vader is strong as the force. We know that Vader is a, we know that Luke's dad is a good fighter pilot. Vader is a good fighter pilot. We see him flying a pilot. And then uh, in the training session with Yoda, when, uh, when Luke fights the shadow Vader, he, he knocks off the helmet and he sees his own face underneath it, foreshadowing that he's his own dad. In fight club, there's a good reveal that, uh, Edward Norton's character is actually the same as um, as uh, is actually Tyler Durden the whole time. And this is foreshadowed by the fact that whenever they're in the same room together, there's never anyone else there. So no one ever sees the two of them together. Everyone just everyone else knows they're one person. In The Godfather, uh, and I, I, I looked this one up because I didn't know this one. In The Godfather, every time a character dies, there's an orange. There's an orange with them. Yeah, and it, obviously the guard fought Vito dies in the orange garden, but apparently oh every other character God. that dies, there's an orange next to them when it happens. Uh, and in uh, Game of Thrones, 
there's of course Jon Snow's parents is a My huge reveal, line. right? Um, yeah. And this one is pretty well foreshadowed because uh, Ned is constantly thinking about how his sister was dying in a bed of blood and saying, "Promise me, Ned. Promise me, Ned." And he would never do something unhonorable, dishonorable, like like father an illegitimate child while married. Uh, and then John is said to look like Arya, and Arya is said to look like Lyanna. But uh, while looking this one up for the podcast, I did realize, of course, this is not confirmed in the books. And there is a small contingent of people that think it is not true. And it's too obvious and that it was actually, he will actually have other parents. But you know, let's not get excited. It sounds pretty confirmed. I love, I loved all of that. I love foreshadowing. And like you said, Lance, like I think the key, one of the keys to really having a satisfied reader is letting them be in on it, but not too in on it, that they figure everything out and it's a little bit too easy. So that's a very delicate balance. And this is where the saying that great readers are great writers, the more you can read and really be tangible with the text and with what other authors are doing. If you see something and you're like, Oh, I really like that. You can adopt that into your book. Um, I think like, honestly, what I was going to say, like the game of Thrones thing, you know, back before there was a show, um, there was the game of Thrones, like song of ice and fire subreddit and R plus L equals J was like the big thing on there. And I, being me did not even realize all that foreshadowing in the books like talking about it now it's so obvious um but yeah that one is is an example of where it might have been obvious for someone else but it wasn't to me and then thinking back on it I was like oh my god like how did I not figure that out of course like that makes so much sense um you could also say that um there's foreshadowing that Tyrion also is actually a secret Targaryen um, just because of like his parent, his parentage and how uh, his mother was, you know, looked on favorably by one of the Targaryen princes or whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, I, one thing I do want to mention is like your story can also collapse under the weight of too much foreshadowing. So I think it's one of those things that requires a bit of a light touch. One, one of the shows I think about, um, or, or mediums that has just a bit too much foreshadowing and Pat's going to hate me for this, but I think Westworld is one of those shows that did a, a bit too much where it was like, it was like a pot, almost like a puzzle that you had to solve. And I don't want to work when I watch my TV. Like if it's, if it's there just a little bit or enough, I'm happy. But if it's too much, it turns me off so hard. So um, I would like to respond and say that, I was going to use Westworld as my excellent example of foreshadowing because <laughs> I think if you do a really good job foreshadowing um, and you have a sick enough reveal, you should be able to watch the show or read the book again and it'd be a completely different story. And and like that definitely is apparent in Westworld. You watch it the first time and it's a completely different story than the second time. And both stories are good, I thought. There's the other story... Um about what's the movie about there's the post-apocalypse and the main character is walking across the the world and it turns out he's blind the whole time yeah, oh, book yeah. of Eli. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was that was a great movie because at the very end you find out he's blind and then you're like oh it was so obvious and then if you it has but what i want to get at is having awesome foreshadowing i also don't usually pick up on it on the first read at all but it makes the reread so much better a book that is a great book and then it's not really a big reveal book or a big, you know, a big foreshadow kind of book. Might not have great re-readability. But if there's incredible foreshadowing and lots of it, right, it changes the, it makes the reread like a whole different experience and not just a repeat of the first experience. Yeah. Westworld was, there was a freaking maze. It was the whole point of it was you're supposed to work. You should have known that you had to work watching that show. I think that show is the most overrated show I don't know Sorry, about is the this other your Sahara? I think it's actually the most overrated show so ever made. Season two, I've got some complaints about, and this also goes to foreshadowing. Um, is they introduced that brain scanny thing in season two, and they never did it before. And and all the other season or in the first season to access their memories, they do like the therapist like sitting in the chair thing and talk with Dolores to with Arnold and Dolores or whatever. 
And then in season two, they're like, oh, screw it. We'll just open up their heads and have a little white brainy thing because it made sense for the plot and they needed it. But that's where like that should have been at least mentioned if it's that significant yeah. of a tool in season one. Another one is, um, I don't know if you guys watched Prison Break, but the last oh, season, yeah, they, you know, Scylla, they never mentioned Scylla before the entire series. And then Scylla is like the ultimate focus of the entire series see that's like, a that's yeah, bullshit to me it is bullshit you this is like the discovery planning rating where it's like and the thing that sucks so bad is that first season of prison break is unreal yeah it was fun that is I mean, so season one westworld too we'll uh, we'll agree to disagree on that but that first season of prison break is so friggin' watchable anyone could go back and watch it and for the first time and just have your mind blown it's an awesome show um and yeah planning versus discovery like if you want to keep the momentum going you have you have to plan you have to plan your books really well I mean I think JK Rowling also suffered like sometimes when a reader has like a lot of questions about well like how did that work then or like this is a it's a very convenient coincidence like things like that you know, you want to yeah. try to avoid, but that's anyway, that's probably going a lot less from foreshadowing. And it can also be foreshadowing can be very, very light. Um, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy's relationship is foreshadowed in the moment where she looks at her friend after they have a terrible interaction um, at a dance, like in the first chapter when they meet each other. And she looks at her friend and goes, oh, like, it doesn't matter. I probably will never see him again. And then at the end of the book, they end up getting married. So there's there's some a very very light foreshadowing in there too. So you can you can go as you can do whatever you want, but you've got to make sure that it pays off. In uh, season four, or I'm sorry, in the fourth book of Harry Potter, when um, I'm trying to remember the exact scene, but there's there's a moment where like Harry and Voldemort are fighting right in the maze. Yep. And then Harry explains what happened to Dumbledore. And I don't remember exactly. I probably shouldn't have brought this up. It's I don't remember. When but the, uh... Dumbledore has like a sparkle in his eye and realizes that Harry is a Horcrux or whatever. So I feel like Horcruxes are a little bit silly. Like they yeah, I don't think. I don't know how much series. it existed before Book 6. I, yeah, I, I don't agree. Think, but uh, they at least existed in Book 4. That's, yeah, maybe. You know what? That could be. I could believe it. Um, and another thing is, I don't think the Order of the Phoenix is ever mentioned prior to book five, even no. though it's like super integral to like their history and all their parents were in it and everyone's in it. But I don't think it's ever mentioned prior to book five. They're just like, oh, we resisted Lord and Melt. We're the no, good guys. Really <laughs> oh, by the way. Yeah. You know, but, if you write a, a seven book series, like, you know, yeah. you got a plan. But the other thing is, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, when I'm, if you're reading the first book, like I, I said this to Pat, I don't know if it was last week or the pre- previous week where I was like, where I said, Pat, I love that you're only sprinkling in the necessary names, right? So you also have to say, well, are you really going to put in all this stuff or just put it in when it becomes relevant? So there's a balance as well. But one thing that's important about foreshadowing, I think, is if you, some books, some style, some like plot plots just may not need it, right? Like if you have mm-hmm. a bit of a chosen one plot, it doesn't mean, you don't have to have a sweet twist ending that was surprising yet inevitable. Uh, which is what I think you should go for with this, with a twist ending. But, but if you have, think about if your plot, if, if your characters are getting bailed out by anything, then if you, then having good foreshadowing is the difference between readers considering it to be a deus ex machina and a cop out and a bailout and then not, not satisfying and readers being very satisfied that this was accurately predicted on like page one, right? If you, so like, if you, if you suppose maybe you're writing your book and at the end, you come up with the coolest end scene, but they kind of get bailed out and by an, a new force or a new power or a new character, you got to go back in and add that person so that like at Helm's Deep in two towers, they get bailed out by Gandalf arise, arriving with, um, well, you know, and in the movies it's, it's Aomer and in the books it's, uh, it's what well, the other guy, whatever the other guy is. And Gandalf says, oh, look for me on the morning of the fifth day. That one sentence makes the payoff awesome when the good guys show up. Because the promise is not you have to win the battle. The promise is you have to wait till Gandalf gets there to help. And then he shows up. And you had forgotten about it. But you then you remember right away. Mm-hmm. And if he, Gandalf hadn't said that sentence, 
And if you hadn't seen Aylmer get exiled and run around and talk to Aragorn, then you would have been like, what is this? An army just shows up to help you? And that's actually kind of what happens at the end of book of the third in the third movie. I'm talking about the movies, not in the books now. In the third third movie, just these armies show up of the dead and just win the battle for you. And you're like, what? The Battle of the Bastards, too. Listen. They get, they get bailed out. But we yeah, and, and there's a problem with the Eagles, Lance, that we will Eagles. talk about. We're Eagles not doing Eagles. This is not Eagles cast. This is not <laughs> not not today. We're not doing Eagles I have cast. such a problem. Um, but well, listen, this is actually maybe a little a good little segue to, to say that our first um, watch party, I know we were like banding about some other movies, but due to the fact that the Rings of Power is going to be dropping on Amazon, um, and I've been wanting to revisit uh, Lord of the Rings, and I've, I've successfully bullied my two colleagues into um, watching The Fellowship. Which one are we going to watch? A Fellowship? Yeah, we're watching Fellowship. Okay, sweet. I think Fellowship um, is my favorite movie of the three. Even though Helm's <laughs> Deep has the has the the sweet the sweet ending, which I know. What's the like. second one called again? Uh, second is Two Towers. Two Towers. And I think that's my favorite. It, okay, so, Pat, my favorite. But yeah, what? I just to go back to foreshadowing one more time. Oh yeah, um, go ahead. You don't have to. Every book doesn't have to be Book of Eli or whatever. But you yeah. also can't throw eagles in at the end with no justification. So I think that's there's the, rules. Yeah. You can't screw up, but you don't have to nail it. Like you can have a good book without having a crazy twist. Absolutely, plenty. But you could tons fuck of up great book books. by having a crazy twist that wasn't yes foreshadowed. Lord of the Rings is still the most successful fantasy series of all time, even though Tolkien introduces gr- gratuitous Deus Ex Machinas. Um, so and people still love it. It's fine. He made a lot of money. He is the grandfather of modern fantasy. Foreshadowing, it is what it is. You got to read a lot of books to know how to do it correctly. And it takes a deft hand, but when it's done well, it's so freaking awesome. And let's let, yeah, another thing to be clear about like, if you're, you have a, if you're writing a fantasy book and you have your characters walking through the woods and you're like a quarter of the way through the book, and then like these wolves come out and they're going to attack you, and then the wolves are running towards you, and then boom, arrows in the throat for all of them. And then these good guys come over the woods and they're like, oh, we saved you, and then we're going to talk to you about your quest. You don't need to foreshadow that because the wolves are A, not a real threat, B, not super relevant to the plot, and you're more introducing the, the new character. You're not actually bailing out your characters because that's not the main plot. The plot, and unless the plot is that these wolves are going to kill you, and then you arrive at the wolves at the end of the book, and they just get bailed out by nothing. You know, it's you have to... And that's, I would say for foreshadowing, the main thing is just write your book. And then you can go back and add it in afterwards. And when you go back and add it in afterwards, you can have the perfect foreshadowing because you know exactly what will happen. So you can set up the promise. You can have your characters do their thing and discover tiny little tidbits of information and then have your big reveal. And it's ironic that I talk about this because I had one big reveal in my in Two Moons Part 1 and neither of you like was a huge fan of it. Oh, and come on. We were fans of it. You were anyways yeah well it was it it, yeah yeah it was and it was fine and the it's actually a very small thing to fix right the main thing is that it basically turns out that this these people that were lost they actually they're they're actually still around they just stuff happened and they get refound and the problem was i had not accurately said to the i had not shown the reader why that was important to the relevant characters I knew in my head why it was important and I knew it was going to come up later, but the re I didn't actually explicitly say it in the book. So it's very easy to fix. I didn't have to fix, change my whole story. I just had to change some little things in it. And that's why one of the many reasons that having a writing group is very helpful. Well, now that we're on your book, should we uh, dive into the summary? I'm very excited also to talk about your book this week. Oh my God. Yeah. Good part. It was good part. All right, so for my summary of my chapter, this is mostly from the perspective of General Jaska and Captain Vinoy. So we start with General Jaska right moments after the end of book one. He's been horribly injured in the battle at the end of book one, and he finds out that his en- enemy, General Atikan Royi, that he thought he was fighting against, had actually slipped away from him and had fled with a large part of his army, making his victory n- insubstantial. He gets his army to go out in pursuit. He's also lost an eye. 
We then go to our protagonists at the Nikonadam Pass in the mountains. Half of our protagonists have left to go steal the Black Moonstones, and now we're following the other half. Benoy, Kaldan, Sathya, and Miramat. Sathya's picking Kaldan's uh, brain to get, help, to, get, uh, to get smarter about military tactics. And together they talk about their enemy, Atikan Royi's brilliance in losing battles, but winning wars, and, speci- and the specific mechanics and examples of that. At the foot of the mountains, the enemy army splits up out of nowhere, and half the army leaves. While the odds are still bad, the protagonists decide that this is the best chance they're going to get, and they're going to go kind of against all odds and try to fight the, this battle, run out of the mountains, surprise them, and then try to escape their uh, being stuck because they're stuck in the mountains and running out of food. When they run out and attack, when they go and start their surprise attack, the enemy army actually retreats right away and doesn't fight the battle, which is about which is uh, which is what we've come to expect from General Atikan Roy if he doesn't like his odds. So they chase the bad guys to the Metak Hill Town to join with the the Federation troops reinforcements. They figure that. Hopefully, the reinforcements are at are at the Metak town, and hopefully they can hold the town and then join with the reinforcements and then win the war. Pretty simple. Maybe, though, they'll have fought and lost, but then they can still hopefully regroup with some stragglers. They need to capture this town because it has some foundries, which they can use to make muskets. We then leave those characters and go back to General Jazka, who's who's tearing across Biranj, trying to arrive as fast as possible to meet up with the protagonists and chase down his enemy, Atikan Royi. We see Jaska test uh, an armored canal boat with crossbows. He then learns of his alliance with his hate, the hated empress, but he reluctantly agrees because it is fundamentally the right thing to do. Finally, Jaska arrives at the crossing of the river at Matak Hilltown, with Metak Hilltown across the river from them. And the rest of the good guys are there and they meet up. But things are bad. He figures, he sees that the good guys are there and the bad guys have already crossed the river, which means the reinforcements lost the battle and the bad guys have crossed the river and have taken this really important location. But Jazka learns that things are actually worse. The reinforcements have defected and have joined the bad guys. They did this for a number of reasons, but that's because they uh, there's there's been uh, the, the the bad guys twisted the interpretation of events and made it seem like they were actually the good guys. So the the crew and uh, fill in Jaska on the great secrets they learned at the end of book one, which is that the Black Moonstones have this great power to uh, to to destroy the world with huge amounts of energy, and that the bad guys have two of these stones. As Jaska hears of this, his eyes darken, and we have, and he starts telling them a story. To end the chapter, we jump to an interlude from uh, from seven years ago. It's from General Jaska's perspective, and we see him at this at this distant, faraway battle where he's fighting the Vigilani on another front, and it reveals that he, that General Atikan Royi, who was fighting the battle, seized and captured a Black Moonstone. And he did it on purpose, and he for sure knew what it was, and that he has another one. So the bad guys have three Black Moonstones, and this is pretty bad. So first of all, having only met Jaska through other people's perspectives, I thought it was very interesting that uh, he's in a redemption arc, because he seems to be infallible in the last book. Um, so that was an interesting almost twist in itself. Uh but I guess we did know that he's lost a war before, um, but I didn't realize like how much it weighed on him because Benoy only talks about how great he is. Um, the uh, the first scene where we get him and he's hurt um, and he says, I could put my head down, I could rest, I could go back into hiding or fall here now and rest forever. That was great. Super like powerful. Um, and then, you know, he basically gives himself a mental pep talk for the rest of the short chapter with him. But um, anyways, very good. Um, and then I, I really enjoyed the strategy 
uh, talk between them. It was an interesting kind of like argument, but also collaborative, um, and, and having the like tactical retreats is, uh, is a really interesting, um, concept, I guess, to introduce and, and that being kind of the superpower of your enemy is to just slink away unscathed and, uh, and leave you scratching your head on how you're losing. Um, so that, that came across super well and, and very interesting. And then, uh, oh, I don't know, this is maybe a nitpick, but you can't just change the W and the O in the SWOT analysis and get away with that. Is that what I did? You, you're like, we need to do, you basically called it a SWOT analysis. Oh, actually? <laughs> okay, I need some more synonyms. Yeah, go back in there and take another look at that. <laughs> Um, I didn't even realize. Then, uh, yeah, so now we know uh, General Roy is very slippery and uh, and how that's worked out for him in the in the past. Um, oh, another great scene and is the Benoit tossing the torch in the air. I don't know if this was on purpose, but and I know he has kind of done this before and taken the ropes with him and everything. But you just finished talking about all these tactical retreats, and um, in Canada, we're, by the way, we're not allowed to even call it. We call it a withdrawal because uh-huh. retreat sounds like we're. Anyways, it's a different meaning. Words matter in the Canadian military. But anyways, um, when he he throws the torch up in the air, gets them fighting, and then uh, leaves the or burns the catapults and takes the ropes with them. He's doing the same thing, but it didn't work for him because he's already doing that. He's already about to do his own tactical <laughs> retreat. So nobody even cares about this uncontested ground that nobody's interested in. Do you, you know, I did that subconsciously. I didn't, I didn't actually think that literally they're talking about how he constantly retreats unless it's a perfect situation. And then Benoit does the exact same thing right away. I didn't even notice that, but I'm wondering if I should mention it and be like, oh, you know, he could just have one thought about it. Yeah, you could. Although I noticed it right away. Okay. Yeah, the reinforcements, uh, extremely plausible. You, you've been talking about plausible the last few episodes, and this was very plausible. The explanation of how he turns the, like, Biranji troops against themselves, very reasonable. Well, it of makes sense. Of course they hate the Empress. Of course they're going to go with whoever tells... Anyways, yeah, it's good. Of, it makes a lot of, of sense. And um, I even say when the troops are leaving the Nikonadam Pass foreshadowing again the scout it's just a passing sentence but the scout says the vijadalani troops are mostly still here the biranji troops are the ones that left so that when walat shows up the bad guy walat shows up at umatak hill town he's mostly got biranji troops so he looks like a good guy right how did he get those troops again those are those are also federation troops those are the federation troops that were going to show up to help in book one because okay. there's new waves of Federation troops coming in as people right, volunteer, right. right? I mean, the war's only been going on for a month and a half, right? True. Oh, and yeah, Wallet, Wallet's troops are Biranji. Yeah, and Wallet is a like a super prominent Biranji. People know him and recognize him, right? So if he comes in and says, I got their best general to defect, and now we're together, we're going to beat the Empress. That just sounds good. It sounds... Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm glad you thought it was possible. That's very good. And then... Um... Now I'm sure the next uh, arc for Benoit is going to be having to fight his own people because his main motivation throughout all of this has been to protect his people. And so now he's uh, he's facing up against more people who are just like him trying to defend themselves. Um, so, yeah, very shocking turn of events. Uh, and then, yeah, the flashback to bring it all home, like well done flashback. It um, didn't it wasn't didn't get dragged out. Uh, yeah, it, it was good. It was effective. I, I thought, like, yeah, a little glimpse of past Jazco was nice to, because, and you actually, I guess, already foreshadowed throughout of like winning battles, losing the war, and now we get the glimpse of him at his lowest, like losing that war. Um, so that was nice. Instead of getting it at the start, you you built it up to it. Okay, so I really enjoyed reading this part. Um. I thought, first of all, like such a great introduction to Jaska. Also a clever way to remind us of what's happened recently in the first book. 
Um, so you killed two birds with one stone there. I also really enjoyed the writing, like when he's wiping the blood. He has an arrow in his arm, wiping the blood off his face, but he's still such a stoic person and is kind of just annoyed with himself um, and, and what's happened. So you get a sense of the character right away. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I was so happy to see Alawid here because we didn't get a lot of him in the first book. Um, so I and I was very intrigued by him. Um, so I was really happy to see him show up. Um, and also like really appreciated the careful attention to detail in terms of tactics and military planning and that you also have Safia there who is in some ways a novice and is learning because I'm learning with her in terms of how all of this works. Like this is not something I would know about. And that's a really great strategy for other writers too, that if you're trying to explain something that you have a lot of knowledge about and you throw in a character who knows nothing about it, that character is a stand-in for your reader. Um, so I appreciated that. And um, one line that also stuck out to me, which I felt like I really could understand the strategy. It was like, um, uh, Attican wants to fight with like a well-paved road behind him. And Jazka wants to fight with his men, like with a back to the river, right? Like just, I thought that was a really awesome way to characterize the two fighting styles. And as soon as you said that, I was like, bam, okay, I know who these two people are. And I know what a clash is going to look like on the battlefield. Um, and more to that point, I kind of thought, oh, Atticon, using a bit of a Roman military strategy there, literally, you know, transforming the landscape with your army to like literally enroaching and, and almost living there, you know? Um, so that in that way was familiar to me. Um, and not only that, but through all these conversations, you are, I mean, I don't know if I want to call it foreshadowing. You are more like promising that this is going to be the fight of their lives. They're outnumbered. Um, you know, Atticon's like a a great general they're learning from him almost in a way before they go to battle um so you're you are making a promise that this is going to be a big fight um we are also getting a great rundown of the stakes so we know so time is running out because the rage fire is a game changer and it is growing yeah. and they don't have a lot of time before that becomes usable I didn't say that in the summary, but basically gunpowder will be freely available to everyone in the region in three weeks. So yeah. you have to ca capture these two areas that have metal foundries so you can make muskets because that's what the other people are going to do. Yeah. So that, so yeah. So right away, also, I got a sense that there's not a lot of time here. Like they need to move quickly. So they are under all, so yeah, like we have these kind of like a, opposing um, forces of like having a really great general and then having the pressure of time to like face this general because if you had all the time in the world you would do whatever you could right you get reinforcements you would but you don't so that adds this interesting level of pressure that's happening and then I, I was also noticing that I was appreciating how realistic like the logistics were getting and whenever a question was popping up in my mind you were answering it so I, I was like, okay, well, what's going to happen then? And it's like, okay, well, I, I, I didn't write down the specific example when I read that. But yeah, like I, I noticed that throughout it. Like you weren't leaving me questioning anything. I, I was with you. I, I believed it. Um, and you foreshadowed Jazka's quick arrival um, when you said the, the revenge was burning out the pain. So like he's very motivated to get to where he wants to go. And I also, I just, I can't, uh, I just can't say enough how much I really just enjoy this character. I really, really like him. I think you're foreshadowing that he's going to go out in a blaze of glory also. Maybe that's a hot take for later. Um, is he based on, a, okay, and don't, don't tell me who it is, but is he based on a real general that yes, lives? Yes, 100%. Okay. I have mentioned on the podcast who Okay, it was. so I think maybe, because the one I wrote down was Scipio Afri Africanus solid yeah the guy who one of the greats cannibal up yeah. the mountains okay but so it's it's not based on him but it's you not know, okay. a composite character everyone's a composite character right 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 and then i i think the moonstones 
So I was wondering if there was foreshadowing about the enemy having the moonstones already. And I was trying to think back on it and I couldn't remember. So that was kind of like a reveal to me yeah. um, that he, that Attican would have two. But I he think one. Attican has one. Attican has one. Yeah. And then Wolot has one. And the Duchess has one. Okay. And they're going to get the one from the Duchess. Exactly. Okay. Um. So. Oh, and they're God, buying the one really from Wolot. Exactly. So that's they have to, stakes. yeah. Um, okay. Can yeah. I talk about my foreshadowing with that? Um, I did not explicitly foreshadow any point. I don't think you would have, well, like uh, when I think of foreshadowing, it's kind of like, it's kind of, I'm kind of saying, I'm going to tell you at this point, uh, with a, a quarter of the way through book two, that Atikan, who you've known since the beginning of book one, has actually has a black moon zone. It's super powerful. And he's had it for a long time and he got it with the purpose of knowing what it is. I don't foreshadow that exactly, but it's kind of, when you think about it, he's been part of the conspiracy for a while. This conspiracy is called Third Moon. There's three conspirators. Why would they let Adikon in their group of conspirators? It's a group of conspirators explicitly based on the fact that they each have a moonstone, right? But you have to oh, do some like logic. Mutually assured destruction. Well, you'll see what the, there's more to the, I have, I have started talking about how their moon zones have more power than what I've said so far. Um, what'd you say, Pat? Oh, I was going to say like the justification for him being part of it was just having a big army. I expected. Yep. But uh... for sure. But then when this happens, the idea is that that's believable and plausible. But then when you get Jazka's flashback and you're like, Oh yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. He would need to have a moonstone to be in their inner circle. Right. I wasn't shocked by it. I didn't think it was out of place. Like, okay, that's good. Um, and then one, one other thing for also tying into foreshadowing is I, when I, I didn't plan this part of book two, I had not planned at all when I was writing book one. Right. What I did do is I knew that Jazka was going to need a, like a legendary status. And he, he, you know, he did everything and all this stuff. So I'm always talking about his big war. He fought in Moshesh. And mm-hmm. I don't really go into a ton of detail, but even book one, I constantly talk about him fighting in Moshesh and doing stuff there. So I was glad I would, I realized now, and then I was thinking, well, how can I give Atikan a black moonstone and make it cool for the reader? Right. If I just say he has a black moonstone, you're like, okay, well, what's the story or how do you make it interesting? How can you make it more conflict driven? Well, I can make it conflict driven by him literally taking it in a battle that he had with Jazka. So cool. Well, I was able to use what I did in book one. It's like what I was talking about for foreshadowing for discovery writers. I had talked about Moshesh in book one. And then now I was able to recycle that same thing. Mm. So I didn't have to. So it seems it might seem to the reader like, oh, all this talk about Moshesh. Why did Vigidalon want to conquer Moshesh so bad? Like, were they just power hungry? Maybe there was more to it than just that. I wasn't thinking about that at the time. But I, I put it there just as filler. And then it turned out to be an important part of the foreshadowing for what happened in this chapter. Do you know when I hear that, maybe this is too woo-woo for some people, but like I really believe like stories, like we are just the mediums for these stories we want to tell. And so it's like, even though the story wants to be told in the way it wants to be told. So like, yeah, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? A little woo-woo, but yeah. It's a little woo-woo, but yeah. And then, and the good thing about that is like, you can kind of take a step back from responsibility and just be like, well, you know, my friggin' news, like this is the book they wanted me to write. But anyway, no, I'm just saying like, that's, that's very cool. And also a good way, because you gave your, your character a strong backstory and like, you know, you cared about those details. You left yourself a door to go back and open. Right. So caring about the details and, 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 you know, exploring those little things can actually help you in the long run. So that's great. So, side note, um, I liked how you described the Black Moonstone for really, I think, kind of the first time in detail, like sucking the light out of the room. And um, that was really neat. And Spooky. yeah, a, good, a reason, like a nice place to put it into, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's like a weirdly relaxed setting. Like the city's burning around them, but they're like together in this tower by themselves. Check out this cool thing I have. All right. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. I, I I didn't like have, I didn't know anything about the queen of Moshesh before I wrote that chapter. And then I feel like after I wrote it, I was like, oh, I kind of like her as a character, even though 
you know, she had existed for like a whole 45 minutes at that point. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's world weary. And, you know, my country is from a, 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 a different time. And, you know, this new world is not for me. It's, you know, I don't know. Kind of works. And then she has the black moon. So you're like, oh, no. Yeah. Some Galadriel energy there, you know? Mm. Yeah, speaking of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, just, I'm just going through an obsession. I just have to tie everything back to Lord of the Rings now. Thank, please move along. Thank you. So when are we doing, when are we doing Lord of the Rings? I have zero editing so we can air it like that day. Wow. Yeah, we yeah, could that's do. the era that we're in right now. I just can't wait. Like, guys, I already watched it. So I'm I'm going to talk through the whole thing. Let's watch the second one then. No, I watched the second one. I'm on the third one now. You're on the third one now. I I watched it by myself so I wouldn't have to talk through it. And then my husband will show up and just be like, well, why can't Gandalf just save everyone? Like, you know, and then it's like, I can't have this conversation with you right now. That one's well answered. That one's well answered. Well, we can talk about it and like when we watch the thing, because yeah, that yeah, is yeah. one thing anyway. But then you have to like know the history and you do like, yeah. like wizards actually just aren't not really allowed to. But but then Saruman's allowed like just says fuck it, it you know. The rules. But, yeah. <laughs> also, you want to know another crazy piece of Lord of the Rings canon? Like um, Sauron is like hot, like a good looking. Oh guy. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why he convinced all these people armor. to join him. Yeah. That's like, and, and then when he, when, when he cast down new, when he caused Numenor to fall, they like, they made, he was cursed to never be appealing to a human again or something like that. So he's not good looking anymore. It's like the curse is that mm. nobody could find him good looking. I think. That sucks. Uh, anyway, we can talk about all this like crazy stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, That's what, a little gonna... sneak preview. Yes. Well, that... But what we are going to focus on, and and it ties back in, right? Because we have Lance here who's writing a fantasy book and every single fantasy author or person that is interested in fantasy, you have to read Lord of the Rings because it is the foundational text to modern fantasy. No one can argue that, you know, it it changed the way everyone writes fantasy. Um, So we're going to be talking about the the writing style and 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 all of that kind of stuff like as we watch the show as well so there will still be a writing aspect to it and yeah we're ha- but we're also going to just have fun and you know have, have a little laugh and just like thank god that they took out all of tom bombadil because that that was a wild part of the first book that we don't have to endure and be traumatized that. by so it's great <laughs> that reminds me of one more thing huge important advice for anyone writing fantasy fiction when you're if you're doing a world map to start off and your story takes place on a city which is probably on a coastline just try not to make it a west coast like every story like i'm like a full two-thirds it feels like of fantasy stories take place on a west coast i think it's because of tolkien just you have east coast once in a while or a north or a south coast that would be great why Oh, well, we can talk all about that because when I read The Hobbit in um, first year English class, um, he has what's called a moral geography. And maybe you have unconsciously done this, Lance, in your map making, but it's like all of the evil lies to the east Uh. and all the good lies to the west. And then it's the same, like in the south, like there's evil in the south and then like, you know, there's good in the north. So how he has looked at middle earth is anyway and then some people will say well that's foundationally racist and then you know but it's a fake world so he can do what he wants but anyway it's it's all very a very interesting conversation that that we can get into um, i would just i would yeah i would just say that um there's a lot of you know just there's a lot of west coast maps (laughs) try to draw anything else that's all i gotta say just anything else island would be great oh my Um, god and also don't do this which every friggin' young adult fantasy author has done, um, looking at, at a few here, where you trace a map of the UK and then you just quarter it off into different sections and call that your map. Like, actually draw a country. It's fine. You know? You can also, yeah. And um, because coastlines are fractal. Thrones just, isn't that a thing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Ireland it, right? with, it's Ireland and Britain sandwiched together. And the wall is literally where Hadrian's wall is. Mm. yes um, 
you know, and those, 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 the people to the north, the, the Picts or whatever, <laughs> who are to the north that are the White Walkers. I don't know. That's fine for me. I don't care. You can have all the West Coast. Well, it's literally West Unless Girls. Unless it's racist, and then figure it out. It just, you know what? Write your own story. It's 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 cool. Yeah, write your own story. Trace a different country. Do it. There is a lot of there is a lot of 15th century English villages and a lot of West Coasts. So, I will say. <laughs> The Middle Earth is not like necessarily totally medieval. No, or like 15th century. It anyway, and it's New Zealand. Yeah, it's New Zealand. (laughs) So who cares? Yeah, Middle Earth is New Zealand, guys. You heard it here first. (laughs) Did Tolkien even know about New Zealand back then? Yes. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Oh, don't get me started. I love Tolkien. Like he is just such a grumpy old man. It's hilarious. He's wonderful. And he was best friends with like C.S. Lewis, who also wrote um, a ton of fantasy books. You know, you might've heard of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, and yeah, his, I mean, like, you know, Tolkien was writing languages and C.S. Lewis just had kind of a lion that talked. So I'm sure their conversations would have been hilarious about they had like. Building. They had a writer's group, you know? Yep, really. They were in a writer's group. They were contemporaries. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and they hated, they both equally hated Walt Disney because he was a contemporary too of of Mm, them. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they shit on him a lot. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Narnia kind of got the multiverse thing going though. That's kind of cool of them. What do you mean? Remember the first Narnia? They like... When the world is being created and stuff. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magician's nephew. Yeah, yeah. where they're in the 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 place in between worlds with all the different pools and everyone's tired. And And then evil comes to the new world and whatnot. I think I like can't believe they didn't try to adapt the magician's nephew. Like it's not. Yeah, it's not the best book, but the go on. No, I I guess like honestly though, some like I think those books are so hard to adapt. Like kind of like. I, have you read his dark materials? Has anyone read those Philip Pullman? Like those ones, I feel like are un. You are unable to adapt those. Like those are unadaptable, hundred percent. You know, are, is Narnia a young adult? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe like even children, maybe even adult. children's. Even I found children, it even, like confusing as a kid. Yeah, middle Pretty grade. Good. The part of the magician's nephew though, where they go to the 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 bad or the dying world, it's called Charn, and they find the. The the the, the 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 witch yeah who's the bad guy mm. that part was pretty cool and then they ring the bell and she wakes up and she's and then the kids are like oh we shouldn't have done that it's like no you shouldn't yeah they brought evil to the world right they, the yeah, yeah, yeah anyway well hot takes oh yeah hot takes yeah hot takes get them while they're hot well my original hot take until like literally in the same sentence you squashed it was that Benoit was gonna go and mediate and get the Faraji back on his side. But instantly you turned them against him within the same sentence that I thought of that. Um, oh, like in the book? In the Yeah, because you said uh, uh, Captain Benoit, who they now refer to as... Uh, the Butcher of Benogany. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you got that because I was wondering, like, do I need to further explain this? That, like, in this no, he's region... Not, he's going to be useless in trying to... Get people yeah, they side. hate him because he lost that huge battle right there, right? And they're loyal people. Yeah. And stubborn. Yeah, yeah they're stubborn. Very stubborn, yeah. So that was my hot take for like literally half a second. But no, <laughs> I, then I didn't have any more. Um, my hot take is that Jaska is going to his death in this battle. It's the end of him. We're not seeing him again. He's ser- In my mind, he's served every purpose. Because he's told them about the Moonstone. Like, I, I think, yeah, I think he's done personally. He even said that he was ready in his first line yeah. of the book. Or this yeah. first thought yeah. sequence. Yeah. It's okay. You know, another thing Tolkien doesn't do is kill off anyone. Because he doesn't want to feel bad. He doesn't want his reader to feel bad, you know. But you Makes you sense. are allowed to kill people off. And George R. R. Martin made that okay. So, you can kill people. It's okay. Jaska... Okay, solid hot take. It's not. I gonna need happen, to see though. the map. 
what? He's not, oh, come he's on, you can't, you can't, you can't confirm or deny. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I mean soon. I mean, okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to confirm anything for the end of the book. But he's a main character for this book. Okay, Jaska's okay. going to be a main character. That's why there's, there's, he's one of the main chapters. Like this chapter is called a Jaska chapter. It's actually half Benoit and half Jaska, but he's a, but it's a, but Jaska's the main, going to be the main character. Pat, uh, what'd you say? I want to see a map of this foundry town and where they are. Is it in the map you that have, you sent me? It is in the map I sent okay, you. Okay, I'll check it out. It's on the top left. Because you did say something like he wants to fight with the river to his back. So I, I want to see if that. Oh, that's good foreshadowing. I didn't realize that. Um. Okay, cool. I did put another bit of foreshadowing in this for later. Uh, I had one scene of two paragraphs that didn't do anything. When Jaska is walking, they're walking through the river or through the, they're, 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 they're hoofing it, trying to get to Matak Hilltown. And then they take an extra, some time out of their day to, to test out these boats, these armored boats. Did you guys catch that with little holes for crossbows? It's like a little floating castle. Okay. No, yeah, I got that. I didn't realize that they were metal or armored or whatever. Well, like it's like, it's kind of like shields. But yeah, it's like a big wooden. Yeah, it's a big wooden shield on the boat, and um, and they're extra fast somehow, right? Well, they're just they're 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 faster because they're they're boats, right? So they're faster than you'd get on like a wagon or something. Okay, I see. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyways, he's he's inspired by a guy called well, it's a composite character, a lot of characters, but um, one of the inspirations for him is a guy called Jan Jishka, who was a 15th century general who uh, did lose both of his eyes. And never Damn. lost a battle, including leading battles after losing both of his eyes. He never <laughs> lost a battle. Uh, wow. And his most, his best in his bet, probably his, what I think, well, I, I didn't do a lot of reading. I'm not an expert. Um, but one of the things that, that some stuff that I saw was that his most, his greatest achievement was an ill-advised invasion of, I think, Hungary. And then his, he managed to retreat without losing anything against all odds and that was like his best thing so like oh this guy lost wars too okay cool and uh and yeah and he another in his main one of the one big thing he did was converted wagons into like mobile uh shielded artillery Hmm. so i was thinking if this guy was fighting in birange he would have made it on a canal boat because that's faster and that's why i got the idea everywhere right yeah or a motorcycle, if you're for uh, sure. I mean, that's a new magic system for that, though. No gasoline on the planet. <laughs> yeah, that's Jurassic Park. Motorcycles and jungles are compatible. Um, <laughs> when you mentioned those boats, though, I was reminded, and you didn't mention this in your world building uh, episode, that like technology isn't stagnant even in fantasy. Mm. So you talk about that, like yeah. you're designing better bridges and, anyways. I wanted that's I think a trap for a lot of fan. Probably now most people like know about it, but if you're writing fantasy and it's medieval tech, like you got it, like how you it's tech is never going to be fully stagnant. Right. So if it, your tech is stagnant, that's fine, but give it a solid reason. Like in song of ice and fire, they have these devastating winters that last for years. So you can't, you can only make so much progress before all your food stores get wiped out. And like more people need to farm proportionally than on our world. You're back to just scrambling to survive. Exactly exactly uh like we don't need to come up with multi 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 multi-year food stores every two years or whatever you know um but so so don't just have a stagnant world and i tried to do that with the bridges like early in the very early first book she's complaining she's like why do we need new bridges anyways uh that one person says but um i'm glad you got into that pat all right well i think that's our time Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. Uh, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash WGBC podcast, I think. I'll, I'll edit it so that this sounds better. Um, and if you want to help us out, uh, please uh, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a rating. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. I'm trying to remember because I I turned North America for my current story. And I think I was saying that they were going east. And that's where it gets cold. But I can't remember. I'll turn it back. 
if it is that way. Oh, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, no. I made the sunrise in a different place. You oh, know. your planet is retrograde. Cool. No, I just made them that the the sun sets to the north and then everything else is the same. But their map would be turned 90 degrees because well, of if that. The ma- if the sun sets... Wait, the sun sets to the north? I, I think I said that. Follow you have geogra- You have some like serious, I think, geographical issues. But anyways, this is not the t- this is not geography cast. Well, no, it doesn't matter. North can be whichever way you want. I just made them change the words for west to north. Oh, okay. That's confusing. I might just move it back, and I also might name them after the regular countries that exist in North America. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's that's no I problem. I might do that also. Is it England? Is it the 15th century? Is it a West Coast? No, you're good. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> 